This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. To regular listeners of PreserveCast, you know that I'm a huge fan of the BBC Farm series, which have explored Tudor, Victorian, Edwardian, and other areas of British and world history. Alex Langlands rounds out our interviews with each of the presenters from this series, and Alex also recently published a new book, Creft, an inquiry into the origins and true meaning of traditional crafts, which is a perfect topic of conversation at a moment when the world is almost entirely virtual. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're thrilled to be talking with Alex Langlands, who is both an experimental archaeologist, a professor of archaeology, um, a BBC presenter, um, all sort of a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to heritage, preservation, trades, and crafts. Um, and we're going to be talking about his uh book that's been released that is available now to American audiences, Creft, an Inquiry into the Origins and True Meaning of Traditional Crafts. Um, and we're going to be talking about his work with the BBC. But before we jump into all of that, we love to get to know people. And it's so interesting um, to learn about how, you know, your path to preservation and history and archaeology. So where did you grow up? And I suppose, when did you get this, this bug and interest in history? Um, Alice, a good question. I, I grew up in uh, the southeast of England, um, so south of London, really, and, and family from London and Scotland. And uh, but I actually got, I probably got the passion for history in the past in the southwest of England. And if you, it, it, I mean, in in um, in British terms, it's a long old drive from the southeast to the southwest of England, but in, it's sort of compared to the United States, it's sort of nipping around the corner. Um, but down in the southwest, we went on holiday, visited the site called Tintagel, which has been for many years associated with the mythical King Arthur. Uh, and I think I was, must have been about eight or nine years old. And it, it just really, I kind of really opened my mind up to the past it was a it's a very real place when you go and visit a site that is in fact Tintagel is the best part of 14 well I would say 1600 years old um if, if not older to be honest uh, it's an ancient place uh, and when of course I visit there it's not just the legends that are attached to it which are largely mythical to be honest um it's the um it was finding the pottery and, and I, you know, I didn't personally find it, it was in the museums there and, and finding out about the, the structures of the buildings and the role that archaeology played, the physical past, the material past was, I think, what really grabbed me because I came from a background which was very hands-on. You know, my, my dad's very kind of hands-on, he was a builder um, and I, I kind of grew up, you know, being very hands-on. Uh, so, you know, for me, archaeology was a way to connect with that past and the story of the past but through the material remains. And then I, and I just started thinking really critically about those material remains. So the, the logical thing for me to do when I sort of came of age was to, to go and study at the Institute of Archaeology in London, where I met my good friend Peter Ginn, uh, and to study that critically, really. And so that, that was the kind of um, the start for me. And you describe in the, in the book that you sort of have this like, I don't know, it's almost like a bohemian lifestyle of kind of like going around um, England and the UK doing archaeology and sort of like, it sounds very fun and then it sounds like it also kind of got tiring after a while and you kind of wanted to to settle down some roots. 
is it during that period that the whole BBC thing comes together? When do when do you make the jump? Because I think this is so fascinating that you know you've made this this interesting jump from like true. I mean, you have a PhD in this. You are a true. We we should be calling you Doctor Langlands. Um, you know, you have this true um, academic background in archaeology, and then you make this jump as well um, to heritage as entertainment almost, um, which is, is, is important, right? Because that's how you capture people. And just like you were captured by the physical remains of place, people are captured by these stories and these series, which obviously have been very popular because they keep making them. Um, so when do you go from Mm. that aspect of archeology span to I'm going to be on the BBC? How does that happen? Um, well, it's kind of interesting you say bohemian. I, I would say probably more vagabond. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to be polite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 w- I wouldn't quite go as far as to say homeless, but, uh, you know, I, I, I was so obsessed with archaeology that I kind of, um, you know, I went from archaeological site to archaeological site and cared very little about anything else. Uh, and um, and I, I, don't, I don't think I got... I've never really been tired of archaeology, but I think the process of the context within which commercial and developer-led archaeology happens. If you can imagine Britain's very, it's a very crowded place. It was a very crowded place in the 11th century, 12th century, uh, 5th century BC, it was a crowded place. So everywhere you want to build a house or a supermarket or a road, there, there's some kind of archaeology. Uh, so you go from site to site to site. And I think when you're young and you have the energy and, and enthusiasm, you really enjoy that. Um, and then it does just start to, the shine just starts to come off of that. And you start, I just started to look around and it was an, it was a, an advertisement put out by a production company looking for what they called outdoor historians. And I thought, hey, wait a minute, you're, you want archaeologists, that's what you're interested in. And I had a good, I, you know, with a production company and uh, I had a good conversation with them. Um, they wanted to run the farm. Uh, as it had been run in the year 1630, they wanted uh, 1620 rather important date in, in in American history and European history, uh, world history we could say, and uh, they wanted people to uh, help run the farm. So I kind of put myself forward, had had a great conversation on the phone with them. I went up to their offices in London, and I, I, as I would say to anyone in this situation, let the enthusiasm shine through because. I think certainly when it comes to broadcast media, enthusiasm is the one ingredient that makes shows. Um, so I, ha- I, you know, I got contacted. Yes, we'd love you to come and make this show, uh, and that was it. And it was, in many ways, it wasn't that different to archeo- the archaeological excavations I've been on. You know, I turn up at a site. There's a whole load of jobs to do that involve using my hands and thinking about the past, and and and, and then, you know, reflecting on it. So it actually wasn't that different in some respects. And in many ways, the work I did on that first television program called Tales of the uh, Green Valley, it wasn't that different from turning up to an archaeological site. Uh, you know, you, 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 you arrive at the site, you roll up your sleeves, you get stuck in, you're thinking about the past, you're doing physical things, and then you're reflecting upon those as well. So, you know, it was... Um, it's a thoroughly enjoyable uh, experience. And I think uh, in many ways it hit a sweet spot for me because I, I am passionate about the past. I'm passionate about farming as well uh, and the environment. Uh, and I'm passionate about actually using my, using my hands and, and crafting and creating. So it was such a, it was a really good fit for me. 
uh, and of course got the chance to work with a fantastic group of people. I mean, the enthusiasm comes through because I don't think I'd ever would have been inspired to read The Book of the Farm uh, if it wasn't for the enthusiasm that you put into that. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't seem like a, a volume that jumps off the shelf. Like, I've got to read Henry Stevens' Book of the Farm. But like when you're going through it in the in the in the show, it's like, Oh, this is fascinating. We've got I've got to read this. So you're right. The enthusiasm is it's a key ingredient and uh, you're probably selling yourself a little bit short because I don't think every archaeologist could do that. There's a certain spark there um, that the three of you have that, you know, comes through and you've tackled a lot of different periods of British history and I guess world history for that matter. Is there another era of British history that you hope that you could cover? Is there any new series on the horizon? I know um, we were talking before we started the interview that you have, you've done Victorian bakers and there's there's a bunch of different stuff, some some of which is available to American audiences, mostly through Amazon Prime, some of which isn't. But what what's the future of these sorts of series? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, in some ways, I you know, I kind of feel like they've they've sort of had their day. Um, they could come back. You know, I think it's. It's not entirely believable for myself, Peter and Ruth to go back to another period and kind of not know what we're doing and finding out anymore. And I think there's a there's an element of believability in what what we did. And and, and the, I think the key ingredient for our, our farm shows was what I call mud on the boots. You know, we weren't celebrities sort of dropped into a historical situation for sort of 24 hours or, or a week or whatever. You know, we were archaeologists and Ruth, a, a reenactor. We'd spent a lot of time already critically thinking about stuff who were then put into a situation where for actually for a sustained year, we've got to kind of make things work. Uh, and I think that mud on the boots gives it a believability. And there's a believability to what we're doing. We're not struggling to get by in the past and reflecting on how hard it was in the past. Yes, it was hard. We kind of know that. We want to go beyond that and actually kind of work out how people did things. And there's a degree of experimental archaeology in there as well. And I think that was part of the appeal. I would love to go to the, the what we would call the Georgian period over here. So that kind of era before the Victorian farm. And we sometimes talk about that as a period of agricultural revolution. Uh, and I think to a certain extent it was. There were radical changes in the British countryside. And of course, a lot of that coming about because of empire uh, and all of those issues with, with empire um, in terms of where the revenue, where the money's coming from to support farming in that time. You know, these are really kind of dark places that Britain is struggling uh, at the highest level to kind of, um, to, to, to really get across and, and to engage with. Um, but I, I would love to do that because I think, you know, what was happening in the countryside at the time uh, in terms of destitution, in terms of famine, in terms of innovation, you know, we think of the big Georgian uh, country houses, the huge amount of wealth that's being locked up in those country houses, whilst at the same time we have abject poverty in other parts of the country, and we have this kind of um, global uh, empire uh, which is reducing many people across the planet to almost inhuman, subhuman conditions as well. So, you know, it's a really complex package, I think, there, which I would really love to, to do justice to. And, and hopefully there's a, a very well-endowed um, production company out there who would, who would happily part with the money to do that because, you know, an amazing period, a very complex period and a really important story to tell. 
if you could do one here in the in in the states, and I don't, I actually haven't asked you this. I don't know if you've traveled to to the states. Uh, I know Peter had. Peter had done some um, archaeology in uh, the middle of nowhere, Texas, which must have been an interesting experience for him. Um, but uh, yeah, if you could come over here and do a period of American history, is there a period that fascinates you that you would want to try and tackle uh yeah i i mean i think uh you know as as a as an archaeologist the sort of the the pre uh what you would call columban period uh i'm fascinated by uh sort of hunter-gatherer uh societies and very early forms of domestication and and uh, you know i'd be really keen to do that uh, a couple of years back, I had the privilege of going, uh, getting a tour around what was then the um, Museum of uh, Southwest California, and it was mixed in with the um, Gene Autry Museum. They were sort of coming together, uh, and I, I was really privileged. They had a new research facility that hadn't quite opened, and I, I, and I was shown around that and looked at some of the early basketry, the coil basketry work, which I, I have a sort of bit of a geeky obsession about. Um, and I just, I, I, I kind of, so I love those kind of what we, I think for the wrong reasons, called primitive societies, hunter-gatherer societies. I'm fascinated by the way in which human societies engage with their environment. But I think probably more interesting, I think, is those hybrid cultures that come about when you get different groups of people coming together and, they, and, and you see the crossover of skills and the hybridity between different um, crafts approaches from different parts of the world coming together to create that that hybrid culture i'm very interested in that and the complexities of that um so yeah and it's you know i i, I was fascinated by the landscape i mean i was most of the time in los angeles and it seems like an age to get out of los angeles <laughs> drive for ages uh but when you did get out of it it was an amazing amazing uh landscape uh, and how people work that landscape before European ideas of how you work a landscape. To me, uh, I'm I'm very very fascinated in 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 that. Uh, not in a romantic way, you know, that there was some better way to engage with the planet. Uh, but I think we definitely can learn from the ways other societies have engaged and philosophized around their environment and their world. Interesting. Interesting perspective. Wasn't I? I wasn't sure that didn't didn't expect us to go in that direction. But that's interesting. The sort of the pre-Columbian, <laughs> uh, you know, fourteen ninety one, um, as as sometimes it's referred to here in in the U.S. So, mm. um, your book, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but having read it, uh, I think it's pronounced Kreft. Is that correct? Uh, I, well, actually, it's probably Kraft. Kraft. Yeah, I can, I can, Yeah, I mean, in the sort of in the sort of old English way, uh, um. Yeah, craft. Uh, um, I don't. I, I sometimes say craft, just when I'm talking about it to differentiate between what we would consider craft, contemporary craft, right? And um, this idea around a knowledge and a wisdom that people had around resources and materials and, and making and so on and so forth. Right. So there's a there's a link to it in the show notes, and I I thoroughly would encourage everyone to pick up a copy and read it. Um, it's an inquiry into the origins and true meaning of traditional crafts. And I've read a lot of books about trades and crafts and um, historic preservation and um, tradespeople and all those sorts of things. And I think that this one really is a, it really weaves, uh, if you'll pardon that pun, um, a 
a, a fantastic sort of balance of talking about hands-on work and learning things and sort of the philosophy and sort of the why we do these things and what it all means. Um, it, it, it really is just a fantastic book. And anybody who works in or is interested in preservation or history or trades um, should pick it up. It's a, it's a quick read and it's, it's, there's even moments where it's, it's uh, funny and has made, made me laugh, laugh out loud at some of the stories you tell. Um, but you know, obviously, we're talking through Zoom right now. Um, I know the UK has been through a variety of different lockdowns, and we've been in quarantines and things like that as a result of this pandemic. And so the world has become even more virtual um, and digitized than probably even when you were writing this book. Um, and I'm curious, did you use this lockdown um, to try your hand at anything new? I mean, you, you the, the book is almost structured around your different efforts at trying your hand at these things, starting with, you know, um, going out and, and making hay and not fighting with your your um, your trimmer, which I I laughed because I was like I've 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 done that I fought with the trimmer I, and I started googling like could I get a scythe of my own like man this 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 sounds this sounds way better so did you are, did you try that are you are you honing your 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 craft at, at a different um, skill or what have you used lockdown um, for. Well, actually, yeah, I did. So I did uh, two, two crafts. I, um, I've been making coral baskets for quite some time. And I kind of, um, I've always thought to myself, oh, I should film myself making a coral, coral basket. That'd be, you know, that'd be fun. Because that's kind of what happens on Instagram and what have you. Um, so I, I kind of went up to the shed. I had some fantastic uh, grass ready to 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 work with and i had some bramble cane i thought i'll do it i'll do it so i ended up making and you, it's it's pinned there's a link to it it's pinned at the top of my twitter feed at the moment uh how to make a basket uh and it turned into sort of 12 uh 12 episodes and they're like 10 to 15 minute episodes so it's the antithesis of tiktok you know, if you think you're going to just scroll through and watch like a 15 second, how about it's the anti, it's, it's slow TV, believe you me. Um, and, and there was a part of me that wanted to make that, you know, I wanted to get that across because, because I think too often, it, I, I mean, I love the Instagram thing. I love the digital revolution and what it's done for craft. I think it's done some amazing things for craft in terms of sharing ideas and inspiring people. I think, you know, it's, it's been magical. Uh, but I think sometimes we, um, there's a hell of a lot of hard work that goes behind a craft. And one of the things I wanted to do is to, to make a basket from scratch, scratch, like getting the actual materials from the hedgerow and working with them. And, and at that point, the making of the basket becomes in some ways is 10 to 15% of the overall project, actually growing the grasses to harvest, sourcing the bramble, preparing the bramble, soaking it, stropping it, stripping it, doing all of those. And I didn't quite go as far as making my own bone needle uh, for, for this basket, but I, but I wanted to show all those processes. And so I've put that up, that's up there. It's kind of a free basket making course. I, di I didn't really have any, perhaps naively, didn't have any kind of big commercial drive on that. I just thought I'd do it. I wanted, I wanted to give kind of people stuck at home in lockdown an opportunity to do a craft that to be honest it is free it, it, it there's if there's a hedgerow near you or a bit of rough ground and there's some materials 
you know, it's it's a pretty free craft. It's it's not like things like pottery or glass blowing or blacksmithing, where you need tens of thousands of pounds worth of kit. Um, it's something you can just do with a, with some really basic tools. So yeah, that was the first thing. The second thing I did was build a dry stone wall. Okay. Um, which just I I just I entered a part of my brain, my body, my psyche, and my spirit which I didn't think I would enter. And it was uh, an absolutely amazing experience. Um, Where did you source the stone? That always, that always seems to me like the challenge. Did, did you find it on your property? And where do you live? Do you live in a historic home? You, do you, and no, not, I don't live in a particularly historic home. I, I, have, um, I've, I work at Swansea University, uh, so I lecture there. I have two young kids. I have a very busy wife. So I have, I have a nice big garden um, and I'm kind of right on the edge of a, a place called the Gower, which is a, a fantastic historic landscape. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of like, I've got, a, I've got a really good balance here, but I wanted to build a wall. <laughs> so so I, uh, I ordered up 12 ton of uh, Welsh bluestone so the first ring of stones at Stonehenge was made from a, a, a blue stone from South Wales. And there's a quarry not far from me. So I, I went up and I drove up there and I said to the guy, look, I want some of this stuff. And he was like, how do you want it cut? I said, not too, don't, don't cut it too fine. I want to work it. Uh, so I got some pretty rough and ready stone. And then I spent maybe like an hour and a half every day. Sometimes I did full days just, smacking this stone into shape and building a wall and it's i can't you know i don't want to be ableist here not everyone can do it you have to be quite fit and and you've you know i've got very thin wrists actually so i'm not a brilliant stonemason um but there's something for me personally just taking a stone and thrashing it with a with a hammer <laughs> and then building it into a wall uh, and i think there's some pictures on my instagram i to be honest i was going to post some more now I've got it finished and I've built a can I'm going to come across as a bit of a geek here but I've also built a can in the style of a Bronze Age can with like a portal entrance into it because my current research is around um, in the early medieval period you, you kind of went to hell this other world through portals in cans Bronze Age funerary barrows you have these kind of things in the States so, uh, so I built one of those as well. So it's kind of getting out of hand a bit, to be honest. Um, uh, but I haven't been able to photograph it properly because I'm also building something on the back of the house. So it's got loads of tools and kit in front of it. But when, when it's clean and I've got a good bit of sun on it, I'll photograph it again. But there's a few pictures of the, that endeavour. Um, yeah, and it was good. Uh, you know, in some, in some respects, uh, lockdown uh, has kind of opened up those opportunities, I think, which with the kind of hectic life that I used to lead, uh, all of a sudden I'm not commuting somewhere. I've got these extra hour a day. Oh, let's use it to smack stone. And I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been very good for me. It's been very healthy for me. I love it. I, I had no idea. I mean, people listening might think that I, you had told me that you had picked up some type of craft over uh, lockdown. Didn't know. Thought I'd just ask the question. And, you know, I mean you've built a portal to hell. So, I mean, that's, you know, it's, I, I hope you don't go through it. 
No, probably the thing is, it's a hell. It's spelled H E L. It's one L. And in the pre-Christian period, hell was a good. It was a good place. It was the other oh. world. Uh, you know, and, and then the Christians said, well, you can't go to that place because that's bad. We need you to go to heaven. So hell becomes this sort of demonized place. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's you, you know, that's what you did. You, you were buried. You were met by uh, a Valkyrie, an angel of death. You were met, met by a, a, a woman who would carry you from this world into the next. Um, and we see that in the Scandinavian sagas. We, we see that in other uh, folklore as well, sort of Indo-European folklore. Um, so I didn't, I just had a whole pile of like these kind of boulders in the back garden, which had come out of the ground and I kind of didn't know what to do with them. And I was thought I did a big pile of stones and I thought it was kind of staring me in the face, big pile of stones. I don't know what I do. I'll build a cairn. Uh, and interestingly enough, the hill we live on is, is, is actually called Cairn Glass, which in, in Welsh, old, the old sort of Celtic language means, uh, the blue cairn. So I thought I'd put the blue can back in the put put the can back in can glass, as they say. Um, but I have to be really careful, you see, because I'm one of these. Uh, like I have to, I have to actually check myself when I go into the workshop and not start a new craft. Right, right. <laughs> because my my wife is like, "Where is he? What's he doing now? Uh, what's and, what's he uh, building?" Yeah, I, yeah, I, and and you know, I have responsibilities now. I mean, working in higher education especially in lockdown, big responsibility there to ensure that we're, we're teaching to the standard we would with in-person teaching uh, and, you know, just, just being there for, for our students. So, um, I, I, you know, I just have to be careful. I'm not, I'm a father now. I have kids. I can't just go off and spend, I mean, I once spent two months building a beehive. Uh, you write about that in the book and the, and yeah. the skep and uh, yeah, it, ma- it made me want to have one. Yeah. I, 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 I probably could have built an extension of my house in the time I spent <laughs> building a video, <laughs> uh, but I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it for the passion. So yeah, sorry. Yeah. And the bees are better off for it. So why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, um, we'll talk about, you know, maybe what people could pick up um, in terms of craft and the future of craft and uh, what's next for you and books and TV and all that. We'll do that right here on PreserveCast. We want to thank Oliver Pluff and Company for sponsoring today's episode of PreserveCast. Oliver Pluff and Company tells the story of historic American beverages, including teas, spice drinks, cacao, and coffee for historic sites, national parks, gourmet markets, and consumers looking for a great beverage hand-packaged in signature artisan tins to enjoy a cup of history and learn more about what Oliver Pluff & Company offers, please visit oliverpluff.com. That's Oliver Pluff, spelled P-L-U-F-F dot com. This week's PreserveCast is sponsored by Historic Roofing. Historic Roofing is your old house specialist. They're a small, family-run company of master craftsmen providing clients with consultations and expertise in restoration, maintenance, and repair in the lost arts and crafts of slate, tile, and architectural metal roofing since 1990. Historic Roofing has saved many prominent buildings in the Washington metropolitan area. To learn more about Historic Roofing's many services, visit historicroofingcompany.com, or better yet, give us a call at 410-741-0572. They'd love to discuss the history of your building 
and what its history holds. Before we get back to the episode, we're pleased to offer our listeners a 10% off discount on all Oliver Pluff teas, toddies, cacaos, and coffees. Just use the code PRESERVECAST at checkout. That's E-R-E-S-E-R-V-E-C-A-S-T. PRESERVECAST at checkout over at OliverPluff.com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're thrilled to be talking with Alex Langlands, um, who is an archaeologist, a professor, a BBC presenter, uh, and we've been talking, and also, of course, an author, um, just recently published a book that's available to American audiences, Craft, an Inquiry into the Origins and True Meaning of Traditional Crafts, and there's a link in the show notes to pick that book up, which we encourage you to do. Um, You know, it's interesting... Um, Alex, you've written a book on the broader meaning and sort of philosophy of craft, and then um, and and talk about the hands-on piece as well. But your your BBC partner Peter, um, who we've had on previously, wrote a book really very hands-on, and they almost read like volume one and two. You know, it's like here's the philosophy and the background and the meaning and why we do this, and and here's you know specific hands-on blow by blow how you build your mud oven kind of thing. I'm curious, though, if someone was listening and they wanted to try their hand at craft, I mean, you've talked about stonework and you've talked about basket making. Um, what's the best, like, from your perspective, gateway craft for an amateur? Um, I think I, I think a sort of mix. I mean, obviously, working with textiles, uh, working with wool. Um, so things like knitting, uh, crocheting, um, weaving can sometimes require a frame and, and, and often st- you know, the, the biggest barrier I often think to, to, to craft for people picking up a craft is space. Uh, and people don't really think about that. They think, oh, I want to get into a craft. What am I going to do? Well, you, you kind of need the space. And that means a lot of people, uh, and of course, we live in a world now where an increasing number of people are, live in cities. Finding the space is the challenge. So what can you do kind of that's small uh, and can fit in the corner of a room? And can be packed away you know that that's sometimes the best way to, to kind of start out so you think about your space um as i say like wool fibers working with fibers um whether you're taking the wool picking it up off the the hedgerows uh, over here on the gow or the sheep roam over the commons and they they just leave quite a lot of their wool snagged to the gorse bushes and me and the kids go and pick that up all the time uh you can do felting with that you can spin it, try drop spindle whirls. Um, and then once you've spun it and you've got good at that, then you can use it to crochet or, or darning is another thing. You know, I've got, have I got holes? I've nearly always got holes in my jumpers. Um, darn a hole in the jumper. And the satisfaction I get from having a jumper with loads of darned holes in it. I, you know, I love that make do and mend look uh, because to me that's smart for the planet. Uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea, obviously. Um, and then this kind of like hedgerow crafts as well. Be careful. You don't really have hedgerows in the States. You know, you just, you just, you just don't have them. I think New England, there's a few hedgerows up there. There's some, but yeah, it's, it's certainly not like the tradition of what you have. Um, and certainly not on that scale. Yeah, so kind of like bush, uh, you know, bush, shrubs. Um, you know, you can you can source things like what you call uh, what we call uh, blackberry. We call it bramble. I think you probably call it blackberry. Um, there's all sorts of m- basket making materials out there. You don't you don't have to make baskets because you can make mats. 
mean, one of the things I've been making recently with a rose bush, uh, it's very hard uh, wood rose. Uh, it can be quite brittle as well. Um, and it doesn't burn particularly well. So the properties of rosewood are quite interesting. And I've been making, um, like just splitting up really quickly, making skewers. So instead of going down your uh, uh, supermarket and, and buying bamboo skewers that have been made on the other side of the planet, you know, if there's a rose bush that you've been trimming, you can use those to make skewers. Little, little things like that I've been making with this rosewood as well. I've been making um, little crochet hooks. Um, I made uh, a switch the other day, believe it or not, for, for keeping the flies away just out of grass. Oh, I thought it was for the children. I wasn't sure yeah. when you were <laughs> the switch. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, when they won't get in the bath like my little boy wouldn't uh, this morning. Um, but uh, yeah, so, and, and I think sometimes these sort of early crafts as well, you know, Peter and myself, we met actually uh, on, a, on a project that was called Prim Primitive Technology Weekends. And they were run by University College London's um, our Institute of Archaeology, where we were both students. And we used to help run this Primitive Technology uh, Weekend. And loads of students would pile down to the countryside and just engage in, in doing different crafts. And some of them really basic, some of them really complex. Um, there's good evidence that... Um, uh, food was being cooked in pits. So you, you dig a pit, you fill it with water, you'd have a fire next to the pit, you'd get the fire really hot, you put stones on the fire, okay? So there's all sorts of health and safety implications to this, although I can't remember ever filling out any paperwork. But anyway, you heat those stones up, you get them really hot, and then you get your sticks, and then you drop those stones into your pit with your water in. And it's amazing that actually you then bring this pit to the boil. And you can then put stuff in and cook stuff in the pit. And if the water starts getting cold, just throw some more stones in. And you can actually cook in these pits. So what you're doing is you're cooking, okay, boiling food without having to have a big cast iron pan, which is really interesting technologically, because how do you boil food without cast iron pans or without a big pottery vessel, which you have to be quite tricky about how you cook in pottery because it can crack and all this kind of stuff. So those kind of primitive technologies are actually really good ways of engaging up with crafts on the cheap. And, you know, I would just say to anyone who wants to do a craft, don't fetishize the end product. It's the process. Think about the process. Take that that's the take home for me. And it always has been. Um, try and make something that can go back to the earth is another thing I would say. Because I don't think it's appropriate these days to use up the world's resources for amusement's sake. Uh, you know, I, I'm quite, I'm, I'm increasingly, that's where my headspace is at. So try, and I, what I try and, and say in, in the book uh, is I try and look at crafts as a way of taking organic natural materials and really lift, working with them, creating an object. And you're sort of, it's a sort of suspended decay. And then you use that object and then it goes back to the earth. Uh, and, it, you know, something as simple as a laundry basket, to my mind, it is um, unthinkable that we make laundry baskets out of plastic and then we break them. And then what do we do with them? Chuck them in a river. You know, well, what, what do we do with them when we can make laundry baskets out of wood? And all we need is skill.
um, and time. Skill and time. Yeah, yeah which is increasingly we, we don't have. I and mean, I don't want to sound like an idealist, but you, you see where I'm coming from. Laundry yeah. baskets aren't going to change the world, but it's a start, you know. And, if, and, and, I, and that's the other thing I would say to people is the, pro, the process. Enjoy the process. And the thing you make at the end, if you can chuck that on the compost heap or burn it or whatever, throw it away and do it ethically. It's, it's the process of learning the craft and being at one with materials and thinking through materials is, is the thing to take home. It might be a good segue, segue to one of the last questions I have for you is, I mean, sort of this idea that, you know, at certain points in the book, and I feel like I don't know how you could write a book about craft and trades and not get this way at certain points where you, it sort of seems like the future of craft is maybe lost. Like you, you talk about like this huge reduction between like World War One and, and the modern period in weaving and what was going on in, in Wales. And But do you feel optimistic about the future of craft? I mean, you you know, you can kind of go back and forth, but at the same time, you, you, you mentioned previously, like, well, you know, technology has done amazing things for sharing this is, is, is there a backlash to this virtualization mechanization or are there bright spots that you see? Are do you, are you optimistic about this? I, I, I think I am optimistic. I think we, we are, we're, we're changing our consumer tastes are changing. Um, I think if you have the money to, uh, you, you people are choosing to buy around uh, value, you know, and a value that extends beyond just functionalism. That that the, the objects we choose to surround ourselves now, in, and we all live in increasingly cramped circumstances. Those objects we choose to surround ourselves, we, we want them to have a story, uh, a story uh, that um, I, I think increasingly is is about where something was made you know how authentic is it uh we, we we want those stories in our objects so i think there's there's something to be said there you know we have to be careful not not everyone can afford for example to buy i i bought one of owen jones's great swill baskets to use as a, as, as a uh a laundry basket uh he, he that retails 60 70 quid i think it was uh that so sorry 60 70 pounds uh sterling what are we talk about 100 dollars something like that you know, for a laundry basket, that's a bit, that's hard to take. Um, can we bring those costs down? Yes, if more people learn to make them, um, you know, potentially. And, and if we actually paid the true cost of plastic production and disposal, yes. Um, so I, I, I think it is happening. Is it happening quick enough to save the planet? I'm not sure. I I Sometimes I wake up and I think, yeah, it could be. Other times I think, no, it's not. And, and I am really, con I am really concerned about the way we, certainly in the West, the entitlement we have in the West to objects, of whatever we want, whenever we want it, I think is is, the, is going to be the biggest hurdle. Um, and I think the way in which people are sharing information is great. Maybe we should perhaps think a little bit less about commercialization. You know, I'm going to learn a craft because I want to commercialize. I'm quite keen to teach crafts so that people are empowered to make their own laundry basket. You know, I, I, I'm not a brilliant craftsperson by any stretch of the imagination. I've learned a handful of crafts and I have genuinely replaced objects in my life with things I've made. Um, I, I, and, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly couldn't make my own guitar. <laughs> I don't know where I'd be, uh, without getting my Gibson. Uh, but, uh, but certainly you can look at ways of, um, you know, how can you in your life just consume 
in a way that is more craft orientated. Uh, but how can you also be more crafty yourself? I think is the thing. It doesn't have that. Nothing, you know, not everything has to lead to profit, to money, and and to commercialization. We can be doing this because we, you know, we we have a passion for doing things with our hands, for crafting together, crafting alone. You know, uh, I, and that's the one thing I think I leave people with in the book is craft is about contemplation. It's about the human condition, uh, and the point at which we stop craving and wanting more and wanting more objects. The point at which we actually spend more time in in ourselves, with ourselves, and with, and with friends, making and doing and using our bodies for the thing that they were ultimately designed to do. Um, I think the better for everyone. So you know, that's that. that if I'm going to persuade anyone to get into craft, it's not necessarily because I want them to make things to support their lives. It's because I think genuinely you connect with yourself um, if you do by doing that. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a it's a beautiful way of putting it, and I feel like having gone through this pandemic, I mean, to the point that you were saying, you know, it's not about all the things, and we have all the things. There's the, all of our things are still in our houses, but we don't have people in our lives, and we don't we can't do things, and and that hopefully in some ways has reminded people about what actually matters. It's you know, you can have all the things in your house, but it doesn't seem quite the same if you're locked in your house alone with them. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know. So, uh, what's next for you? I mean, it's just, you know, I, I could, I could listen to you talk all day. Um, and you know, thankfully with, with the, with Amazon, it's likely that I could do that. Uh, there's enough content out there for us to, to, to tune into, but, um, new books, excavations, um, uh, TV series, where, where are we going to hear or find you next? Uh, that's a really interesting question because I think like many people in lockdown, I've kind of just gone through a kind of, uh, a disc defragment, I would describe it as. So I've defragmented the disc and shuffled everything into different places. And, uh, you know, it is kind of a, t- it's a time to think about values. I don't think I want to rush into anything at the moment. I just don't feel the need to rush into anything. Um, <laughs> we had a phrase in Britain called non-essential, things that were non-essential you didn't do. And I thought it was absolutely tragic that the British government uh, grouped museums in with betting shops as non-essential. I thought, well, here, that says it all, really. It was a bit... Um, Archaeology is picking up again. People are, are looking, maybe not this summer, but I think next summer we'll definitely, hopefully, with all of the vaccinations in place, we'll be able to get out and, 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 and hang out together. Uh, and dig some fantastic sites. And if that happens, uh, I'm very much hoping that I'll get the chance to cover them. I did a uh, series one and series two of, of a series called Digging Up Britain's Past. I don't know if that's out in the States, but um, they were a joy to work on. I get to visit archaeological sites all over the country. Um, and hopefully we'll have a series three of that when when there's enough archaeological sites uh, to engage with. What am I writing around? I'm doing some stuff about... Um, uh, <laughs> I do some stuff around medieval shackles, actually, and the use of medieval shackles in ransoming and kidnapping um, in in a period what we, that we call the anarchy uh, in in Britain. So I've been doing some stuff around that, and I'm looking at farming again, the history of farming, uh, like the the big sweep all the way through from the kind of Roman period through to the present, because there's a big discussion in Britain about. What does our countryside look like? Where does our food come from? And how do we go about restoring habitats? 
you know, these are really, really big questions. And I do feel like people need to kind of at least have to hand a, 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 an understanding of where we've come from. Um, so I'm quite keen to find a way to, 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 to write something about that. Uh, that's not too academic, not over-intellectualized, not too popular either, that just sort of kind of sets out, you know, this is how we used to farm. Uh, we don't have to go back there. But, you know, there was a time when we didn't pour chemicals all over the, the landscape. There was a time when, you know, we didn't pour insecticide, insecticides on plants. Yeah, there were less people. Yeah, okay, but there were more people growing food. And there's all those complex, you know, it is complex. And I would quite like to be able to produce something that people can go at, just feel a little bit better informed. Um, environmental history is really important because as we make these, as we as we make public policy, as we engage the wider community in public policy, it's always good to have some baseline. You know, where were we? What did we do? Okay, we had cholera, we had dysentery, we had famine. You know, we had all these things in the past. I don't want to bring those back. But if there is a way to grow food without poisoning the planet. I'd be quite interested in that. So that, that's, that's on the kind of back burner for me. And uh, hopefully I, I will, in the process of writing that, get the chance to visit more historic farms and, and, and can I do what I love, uh, which is, you know, in some ways is historic farming and, and being out there in the landscape, making and doing and crafting. Well, the diversity of your interests is, I think, what makes uh, this conversation so interesting. Uh, you just... You're kind of all over the place, which is really cool, and it's 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 fun to see from shackles to farming and um, Karens and you name it. Um, it's uh, it, it it's fun to kind of have a, a, an opportunity to jump into your mind for a little bit today, um, and thrilled to have had the opportunity to do that. Um, we ask this question of everyone. Normally, people groan when we ask it, um, but we'll ask it of you. Your favorite historic place or site? I'm going to say at the moment a place called Old Sarum. And it's uh, an Iron Age hill fort in southern England. Uh, there's some Roman stuff there. There was some uh, Anglo-Saxon stuff there. And then the Normans came along and built a castle there. They built a cathedral there. Those are in ruin now. You can go and visit the site. It's a hilltop with a ruined castle and a cathedral on. I'm doing lots of research work about there. The shackles I'm talking about came from that site. Uh, and it's just kind of where my head is at at the moment. And I... I it's my favorite place because I've been kept away from it for so, for so long. Uh, and as soon as this wretched lockdown lifts, one of the first things I'm going to do is head down there and, and have another good look around. So that's, that's kind of where I am now. If you were to ask me in two years time, that might change, but that's yeah. Old Sarah. Well, we'll have to have you back in two years, check in on you, learn about your latest book. Um, and, uh, maybe we someday can get you across the pond to come and visit. That would be fun. Um, I'd, love that. I'd love that. Nicholas. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.